people have pondered who Jesus is, and there's a lot of people uh, in our culture, in our society, that are still asking that question. Uh, Some that have asked the question, thought they'd come to a conclusion, and yet have come to the wrong conclusion. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus remains a central figure in the American religious landscape. And there is a uh, research group by the name of the Barna Research Group. Some of you are familiar with them. And they recently concluded uh, a survey across America asking those simple questions. What do Americans believe about Jesus? Who do they say that he is? I want to give you five uh, American perceptions of Jesus that came out of that survey that they just concluded, actually just a few months ago. Number one is this, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. In fact, 92% of the people that were surveyed said that he's a real person who actually lived. Number two, younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. They believe that Jesus was a historical figure, but younger generations are less and less likely to believe that he was actually God. In fact, most adults, not quite six in ten, believe that Jesus was God, about 56%, while about one quarter say he was only a religious or spiritual leader like Muhammad or the Buddha. The remaining one in six say they aren't sure whether Jesus was divine. Can I stop there for just a second and say to you that if you're convinced that Jesus was a great teacher and yet you're not convinced of his divinity, he had the power to save no one. Observation number three, perception number three of Americans. Americans are divided on whether Jesus was uh, sinless. They're conflicted on whether Jesus committed sins during his earthly life. About half of Americans agree, either strongly or somewhat, that while Jesus lived here on earth, he committed some level of sins just like other people. Perception number four. Most Americans say that they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Now that, that one, as a pastor of 27 years, that, that just baffles me, right? You would think that if we live in a country where most people are confessing their lives to Jesus Christ, you think our society would be a little bit different than it is, wouldn't you? On the whole, though, according to this survey, Americans are still committed to Jesus. The act of making a personal commitment to Jesus, often seen as the first step in becoming a Christian, more than six in ten Americans say they have taken, and moreover, that that commitment is still important in their life today. They've made it, and even after they've made it, it's still important to them. Perception number five. People are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. See, therein lies the problem with his deity, and then am I saved by him alone or him in a combination of some good works that I might do? Among adults who have made a personal commitment to Jesus, most, most also believe that Jesus is the way to heaven. When given several beliefs about the afterlife to choose from, nearly two-thirds of those who have made a personal commitment to Jesus say believe, they believe that after they die, they will go to heaven because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. More than 63% of Americans surveyed just a few months ago 
say that they believe that. Now, if you're like me, you find all of those statistics puzzling. (laughs) And were it not for the Barna Research Group, were it not for the fact that it was just recently done, I would question almost all of those perceptions. David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Group, and he directed this national study, he says this, there isn't much agreement about whether uh, Jesus Christ actually was a historical person. There isn't much argument, excuse me. But nearly everything else he said about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. He said, these findings, however, demonstrate the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans. This study also shows the extent of Christian commitment in the nation. He says more than 150 million people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Americans say that they've professed faith in Christ. This impressive number begs the question, he said, of how well this commitment is expressed. (laughs) I would say that that's just a minor statement, right? He said, as much of our previous research shows here at the Barna Research Group, Americans' dedication to Jesus is, in most cases, a mile wide and an inch deep. And you know what's sad this morning is that although we live in a country Uh, where we talk a lot about Jesus around this time of year, uh, around Easter. Uh, The fact is that for uh, many of us, uh, Jesus is nothing more than an ornament that we add to our tree. Do you recognize, though, that this is the most important question that you and I will ever answer, and that is that simple question, who is Jesus? And yet what is unfortunately true is that for most of us, especially at this time of year at Christmas, uh, for many people, they see Jesus as actually just a a cuddly little plastic baby uh, that's laying in some really clean straw in this live nativity scene with a bunch of adults standing around in bathrobes, right? That's their perception of Jesus. There's a lot of people in our world today, not just in America, but in our world today, that see Jesus as a great teacher. He's accepted as that. But they like him as a little cuddly baby Jesus. In fact, that's how he's been defined in many movies. In fact, uh, one moronic movie character, is how I would describe him in this particular movie, said these words. He prayed these words. I use the term prayed very loosely. Dear eight pounds, six ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, and so cuddly but still omnipotent. Those of you that have smiles on your faces, you've seen that movie and you know where that came from. His perception of who Jesus is is nothing close when we investigate God's word of who Jesus really actually is. In fact, C.S. Lewis Uh, in his classic Mere Christianity, made this observation. He said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. I want you to turn with me for just a few minutes uh, this morning uh, to the book of Matthew chapter uh, 16. We're going to look at verses 13 to 16. Now, here's what I recognize, that you probably came in here the Sunday uh, before Christmas, and you expected me to turn to probably Luke chapter 2, right? 
shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Suddenly, and they go find the baby Jesus, and that's kind of where we park uh, on Christmas. This is an incredibly relevant Christmas text, uh, I believe. Hopefully you'll see that here in just a few minutes. Matthew chapter 16, look with me down at verse 13. The text says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question that all of us ultimately have to answer as well. He said, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who is he? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then verse 15, we have a defining moment in theology. We know the study of Christ, in fact, as in a doctrinal sense, we refer to as Christology. This is a defining moment for the first time in the Gospels. Jesus asked the question of the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus asked his disciples this question, and each of us ultimately, whether in this life or the life to come, we will have to answer this question, who is Jesus? Why do I say that? Because Jesus is at the very heart of Christianity. Christ is the central figure in Christianity by virtue of Christianity. If we don't have Christ, we don't have Christianity. But to know Jesus, we have to understand two great things about him. We have to understand who he is and what he actually did. In theological uh, textbooks that we study in Bible college and seminary, we refer to these things as the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And here in Matthew 16, they like burst on the scene for the first time when Jesus approached the matter indirectly by asking his disciples these two probing questions. First, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man referring to Jesus. Who do, who do people say that I am? Now, I think it's a very interesting thing for Jesus to ask this question of his disciples because he's God, right? He's omniscient. He knows exactly who people perceive that he is. Not who just they say they think he is, but he knows even what they're thinking. And Jesus didn't even need to elicit, though, this information from the people that were hanging out with him, that were following him. There were standard speculations that were made of anyone who would uh, stand above the common people, anybody that would be uh, extraordinary. These questions were raised, if you remember, about uh, John the Baptist. When he was asked whether he was the Christ, and if not, whether he was Elijah, uh, John denied being any of these figures, claiming only in John 1 to be the voice of one calling in the desert. Some time had passed now, though, and, and, and this popular speculation was that, that, that Jesus was actually John the Baptist himself. And you remember that John had been killed by, by Herod, uh, by this time, but, but even Herod was wondering whether Jesus was somehow the reincarnated John the Baptist. And so the questions ask, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you might be John the Baptist. Some people say that you might be Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A spe- second speculation was Elijah, 
Elijah was always on the list because the last verse of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, some of the last verses in the Old Testament, it's written, See, I will send you a prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. So they're thinking, well, this is, this is Elijah that has come on the scene. And since Jesus' day, many people have similarly wanted to speak highly of him without recognizing his deity and his lordship. Here's the really surprising thing in this particular text in Matthew chapter 16, that no one suspects that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. The speculation had been made of John the Baptist, and here he is right under their noses, but there's no speculation that he might be the Son of God. We can only speculate that apparently he didn't match up to what their expectations were of the Messiah. Let me stop for a moment and just say that therein lies, I think, one of the biggest problems that we have is we have our idea about who we want Jesus to be about who we like Jesus to be. I said earlier, everybody likes the little cuddly baby Jesus, even if he is plastic, wrapped around in cloth. That's a great idea of of a baby, just a precious little baby with all of the, the cuddly, soft skin of the baby. But what are your adult perceptions of who you want Jesus to be? There's many of us that simply want Jesus to be there on call when we need him in our greatest moments of desperation. I like that Jesus, right? That Jesus that only wants me to be happy, that only wants my wishes to be filled. That Jesus that is the uh, the great-grandfather in the sky, thinking back to my mom's uh, father, you know, he would give me anything. All I had to do was even just insinuate that I wanted something or, God forbid, that I needed something, and he would provide it for me, no matter what sacrifice he personally had to make. For some of us, that's our idea of Jesus, that he just sits back And he's a little genie in a bottle, and he's there when we need him to provide whatever it is that we need. Apparently, Jesus didn't match up to what these people thought the Messiah should be. Why is it? I think possibly it goes all the way back to the the time and the circumstances of his birth. If you go back and you read in the Gospels, um, most of you are familiar uh, with the accounts of his birth. He's born in a stable, in a barn. I mean, think about those of you that are, that are uh, young women here that have either just recently had or are, are anticipating having a baby soon. What would you think if your husband came to you and he said, I've been thinking about it. Healthcare is very expensive. We know that. What would be really great is if we could have a natural birth. And by that, I don't mean like be born at home because that, you know, they're complicated. I'm talking about like a barn. And we have some people in our church that have barns in fact, I don't know if you know this, I recently got a barn myself. I have one. If you're interested in doing this, I will let you use my barn for this purpose, all right? What would, ladies, what would you say to your husband? I mean, he's going to be, my, my little baby's going to be born in a barn? That's what the Gospels say. Not only was he born in the barn, he's born to poor peasant parents, Now, if you're the God of the universe and you're going to bring Jesus, your one and only son, into the earth, 
the great incarnation. He's going to become man. He's going to live amongst them, and ultimately he's going to be the savior of their sins. Who would you have? Would you, would you say, I'm going to choose that 16-year-old right there. In fact, most Bible scholars believe she was probably like 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> Somebody just said, hmm. You're thinking of 13 or 14-year-olds. Let me just tell you, I, I know 13 or 14-year-olds that I trust more than I trust 33-year-olds, just so that I say that. Uh, and I think Jesus knew some of the th- same things that I figured out after being a youth pastor for 20 years. Sometimes I trust the 13-year-old more than I trust the 33-year-old, right? But here's God in all of his sovereignty that says, I'm going to allow my son to be born of a little virgin girl, and she's just going to be a teenager, and they're going to be really, really poor. And then when he's born, we're not going to put him in an incubator. (laughs) We're going to put him in a feeding trough for animals. And then let's not forget, he's born in an insignificant place called Bethlehem. Do you wonder why they would have looked down at this baby and thought, who is this? Could this this possibly be the Messiah? Further, Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I've always been intrigued by uh, that verse. What's your perception of who Jesus is, what he looked like? You say, well, I've seen a picture of him. You know those aren't real. (laughs) Just want to make sure you know that's not real. You know what I'm talking about. The dark-haired Jesus with the flowing locks, the olive-colored skin and the blue eyes. You go, that's my Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And and yet Isaiah says, no, he has no form or majesty that we should even look at him. No beauty that we should even desire him. Paul went to tell us in Philippians 2, in that great kenosis, deep doctrinal passage of Scripture, Paul wrote that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of man. Being found in form as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even the worst kind of death. For the worst criminals, death on a cross. Do you wonder why people had a hard time understanding that this is Jesus, the Messiah? People had imagined that this long-awaited Messiah that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years, that they had heard was ultimately going to come and save them. They imagined him to be something very different than who Jesus actually was. They imagined him to have a very different agenda than he actually had. He never held any political office. He never ruled any nation. He never commanded any armies. He never met a Roman emperor. Instead, for three and a half years, he walked around on the countryside, which a bunch of, for the most part, just dumb guys, guys that just didn't get it. While sometimes they they had some head knowledge of other things that they learned. They might have been a fisherman. They might have had a skill set. They might have been a doctor and had some medical knowledge. For the most part, they didn't get what he was saying. He walks around with them for three and a half years, explains the Jewish scriptures to Jewish people. That's who this Jesus was. And I think that's why people didn't recognize him. Because in their minds, they thought he would be something very different than who who he actually was. 
And so now Jesus asks the second question. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, it's interesting that here uh, where we've talked about uh, the character of Peter, the disciple Peter, several times, and we've referred to him as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? I mean, he's always the guy that says, stand back, guys, I'll speak for us. And sometimes you're wondering, what is he going to say, right? I mean, is he going to say something that's going to embarrass us all? Is he going to say something we're going to go, hey, not me, I don't feel that way. Peter steps out, and for the, for the rest of them, he gives this classic answer to Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, verse 16, the son of the living God. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew a word Messiah. God's predicted one, the long-awaited one, the deliverer of Israel, the supreme one, the anointed one, the coming high priest, the king, the prophet, the savior. And without hesitation, Peter declares him to be the Messiah. Where all these people around him believe that he was just the precursor to the Messiah, Peter boldly proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's what's really interesting. If you could read it in the original language, in the Greek text, which I'm sure most of you have your Greek New Testaments and you read it this way, you would find out that it is very forceful. In fact, it's as forceful a confession as it can be. It's only ten words But in it, the definite article occurs four times like this. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. This was so very true. Peter got it. And it must not have been in the same category as anything Peter had ever said or done. Because Peter had, had, had answered a lot of Jesus' questions. In fact, you remember that at one point Jesus will say to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets frustrated and he gets upset. Peter was in the habit of blurting out answers, most of which were wrong. And in this case, Peter is exactly right. Now here's a great doctrinal lesson. You didn't come here on this Sunday before Christmas to get this, but you're going to get it anyway. Verse 17 Jesus then responds to Peter. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I think that is so, mm, it's awesome. It's good stuff. For those of you that are lovers of of doctrine, of theology, you just mm, wrap your arms around that one and you go, that's good stuff right there. Mark it in your Bible. Why? Because many of us think, That what happens one day is we're seeking in the dark after God and all of a sudden we find him. Let me tell you this, you yourself never find God. God comes after you as we're learning in our series. He relentlessly pursues you and I. That's how we begin a relationship with him. And short of his pursuit for us, we have no possibility, no relation, no hope of redemption to the God of the universe. God relentlessly pursues after us. That's what Jerry and I are trying to get you to see as we work our way through the thread of Scripture in our series that we're in. Jesus says, no, you you didn't know this just because of some of the things that, that you've heard or observed or you've seen me perform these miracles. No, you know this because this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. It was the result of specific divine revelation. And so here's the bottom line today. 
The first and most important thing that any person needs to understand about Jesus is that he is indeed the Son of God, the very God of God, as one ancient creed puts it. And this is because the value of his work of dying for our sin depends totally 100% on who he is. If he is not the son of God, if he is not divine, then his death doesn't mean anything different than anybody that's ever been on the face of this planet in the whole spectrum of human history that has ever lived and then died. His death means nothing more than theirs meant. If he's not the son of God, his death would have no more value than your death or my death. If he's not the son of God, his birth would not be any more significant than your birth or my birth. But because he is God, his birth, subsequently his death, and then his resurrection have infinite value. And that value is that he has the ability to be able to redeem us from our weight of sin. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, and we can know conclusively the answer to that question that those shepherds were pondering. Who, who is this Jesus? Who is it? You see, we're looking backwards, right? You think about all these Old Testament characters that we've been uh, studying and all of the pondering that they had to do, and all of the confusion that must have been there. We have the ability to be able, we know the end of the story. We, we, we know it. We know conclusively the answer to that question that was pondered by those shepherds on that first Christmas. What child is this? As the carol answers, this, this is Christ the King. It's so awesome. And one of you thinks so, and that's so great. It's so great. Thank you. Well, I have a confession to make to you. I made this first hour. I've, I've decided that I'm just going to boldly confess this. But if somebody asks me what I wanted for Christmas, right? I mean, I can think of several things. I always tell my daughter when she says, what do you want for Christmas? I said, things you can't afford. That's what I want, right? And so since you can't give me the things that those things because you can't afford them. I just want your love, right? But I've been thinking about this over the last several weeks. And one thing that I'd really like that I've always had this secret desire, some of you've heard me talk about this, is um, I'd like to be a black preacher. That's what I'd like. I'd like to be a black preacher. I mean, if, if God were to come down this morning and he were to say, I'm going to give you just one thing today, right? A few days before Christmas, I love you, you know, you're one of my under-shepherds that shepherds my flock. What do you want? I'm going to say, let me be a black pastor. Maybe not forever. In fact, I'd like to be a black pastor just on Sunday mornings. I'd just like to preach like a black pastor. That'd be fun. <laughs> what that's saying, Jerry? <laughs> guess, guess our next guy on staff will be a black pastor. That's what we need. It's awesome. I'd love that, by the way. Several years ago, I became familiar with a black pastor, one of many that I've been familiar with, and I've never met this man personally, but read some things that he preached and that he wrote. His name uh, 
was, still is, he's with Jesus, S.M. Lockridge. Now, I didn't know until just the last few days that he was born, you know, you read S.M. and you go, man, why didn't my mom and dad call me W.B.? You know, rather than William Bryan. I mean, I could be W.B. You know, I just got a ring to it, right? He, he was always referred to as S.M. Lockridge, but he was born, get this, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. <laughs> Woo! I mean, that right there, I told a couple after the service, I said, when God gives you your first kids, if he gives you twins, Shadrach Meshach. That's awesome. I don't know where it happened to Abednego, but just Shadrach Meshach, all right? And he was a great preacher, great evangelical preacher, and in, in Detroit in 1976, he he preached a message, and uh, there have been some videos that have been made uh, of his message, and they're really incomplete. They don't really say everything that he said, and they kind of take some words out and do that. And so I thought this morning um, that I'd give myself a Christmas present and in turn hopefully give you one. I want to read for you because this is so significant. He wrote these words, and he entitled them, That's My King. And I thought, wow, how appropriate to the question, who is Jesus? Then for read to you my brother's words uh, that he spoke in 1976, I believe under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, moving through his heart, uh, he spoke these words. And I'll try my best to speak them like he did, as only a middle-aged to older white man can do. All right? He said this, The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. And then he'd say, I wonder, do you know him? He went on to say, my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. And then he said, do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today, he said. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. 
He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? And then I like this part. He said, well, dot, 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 dot. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. And Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Isn't that awesome? why I want to be a black pastor right here see love this it concludes by saying these words he always has been and he always will be I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor there's nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him you can't impeach him and he's not going to resign that's my king that's my king He said, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And he said again, well, all the power belongs to my king. We're around here talking about black power and white power and green power. But in the end, all that matters is God's power. Thine is the power. Yes, and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all His. Yes, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. How long is that? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all the evers, then amen. That's what He said. I love that. And one day when I get to heaven, I want to walk up to Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. And I just want to give him a hug. Because I'll tell you that at this Christmas season, the greatest need that you and I have is not that special present that's wrapped up on that tree. It's not those white lights that you look at and all those sentimental feelings you have because your family's going to be in town. Those things are all great. Nothing wrong in and of itself. But the greatest thing for you and I to know and become convinced of at this season of the year is that question that Jesus asked his disciples 2,000 years ago. Who do you think that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is how you answer that question and more importantly your response to what you say is the answer to that question determines eternity for us eternity this isn't about frosty it's not about Santa it's not about his red nosed reindeer none of that stuff matters we're talking about Jesus And if he is who he said that he was and is, and if he did what his word said that he did for you and for me, then he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And because of that, men and women, middle school students, high school students, boys and girls, we can be reconciled to the relationship that we were created to have. 
My friends, that's awesome. That's great. That's, that's who Jesus is. Shepherds could have only wondered. We can know. That's my king.